Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series, A Life That Pleases God. Do you live a life of perfect faith? Is this even possible? Today, Heath walks us through how Sarah made the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Our message today is called Imperfect Faith. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Imperfect Faith. Thank God for what I hear. It might be rain here, might cool us off a touch in here. Uh, I assure you, last night we were talking to the staff, making sure that we had the air. It was set on 65 all night long, and behold, here we are. But it's, it's sort of like trying to keep ice cream in an easy-bake oven. And that's sort of, that's kind of what this is. There's no insulation on this roof right now. Maybe someday we can work toward that as a project, as a church. And, uh, but in the meantime, we thank you for your patience. Uh, look around for a fan. There are fans in the pews as well. And uh, hopefully we'll all make it through on the other side alive. All right, deal? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 through 12 is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at imperfect faith. It's the faith that each one of us exercise and express. Unless there's any flawless people here today, in which case we'd ask you to rise that we may tithe to you. None? Okay. So we all exhibit flawed faith, and we're going to look at an example of that today in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is part of a series that we're just calling a life that pleases God. It comes from Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not difficult, but impossible. So unless we're choosing to live lives of faith where we know what God says, we follow God's word, and we trust him with the outcome, if we're not willing to do that, it is impossible for us to have a right standing with God and to please him. We will not receive God's combination. A life that is simple and easy and predictable and something that I can judge with my own senses is not a life that God rewards because it doesn't put any trust in him. Well, Hebrews 11.1, 1, we saw that God defined faith. In the rest of the chapter, he describes what faith looks like, and he gives us these tutors. And our tutor today is Sarah. She is the wife of Abraham. Like Abraham, she left her country. She left what is comfortable to her. She was willing to follow him out there into the desert. She's willing to live in a tent. And, so, and she's willing to trust God, we're going to see here today, to open up her barren womb. First point we're going to look at here is that faith comes through flawed people, and I'm glad because I'm flawed. Each one of us is flawed. First part of verse 11 says, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive even though she was past age. The power that Sarah received, it's this word dunamis, it's, we get the word dynamite, it's power, it's the ability to do something. Sarah's ability to go from barren to fruitful and opening up her womb to bear a child did not come from her. It says that she received this power from God. Hebrews 11.11 describes this woman in an impossible situation. She cannot have children. She's never had children. Genesis 18.11 describes her this way. It says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's too old to have kids. The King James is less polite. It describes Sarah as stricken with age. Aren't you glad we don't have a Sunday school class called the stricken ones? You know, this is not a nice, polite term. The Bible just lays it out. This is how it is. She is stricken with age. 
Uh, it describes her, it says, the way of women or the path of women or the cycle of women has stopped with her, that she has stopped being able to be fruitful. She's now in the years where the husband and the wife argue over the air conditioning incessantly. Okay, she can't have children. It's, it's a physical impossibility. And so the thought of bearing children is, it becomes kind of like it is with older women. It's a joke amongst one another. You know, you're not going to have kids. Well, the reason Sarah bore a child, again, was not because she was a strong woman. It means it's because she received power. It's a word that means she received something without necessarily looking for it, expecting it, or wanting it. It's the way we receive bills in the mail. Did you want to get a bill? Uh, there may be sometimes you get a bill in the mail, you didn't even know it was coming. It just showed up. It arrived. And this is the way Sarah received power here today. It wasn't because of her intention. It wasn't because of her power or her ability. It was the intention of God. It was the initiation of God. That's why she received power, because God saw fit for her to have this power. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to look back at Sarah and how she went from barren to an open womb, to a fruitful woman that's going to bear this child who's going to lead to a mighty nation. So we're going to back up and we're going to look at their journey a little bit. And it's not an easy journey. Genesis 12, we talked about with Abraham when God uh, calls him out. And he says, uh, at age 75, mind you, I'm not going to have you raise your hand if you're 75, but 75 years old, it's then that God decides to transform his life, yank him out of what's comfortable and convenient. And then he promises to make him a father of a mighty nation. If you're 75, you're probably not looking forward to fathering too many children at this point, and neither was Abraham. So he, at 75, God makes this promise, and then it's not like God immediately gives him children, does he? Because that's not faith. That's cause and effect. It's what I can see. Great, you promised to make me a father of a great nation. The next day, Sarah's pregnant. Wow, how did this happen? Instead, we see that God makes him wait. Between the time that God first told him he's going to be the father of a mighty nation until the time that he actually bears children, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be about 25 years. Uh, and during that time, we, we see uh, their move, you know, out of their land. We see them go to Egypt, remember, and he's uh, lying about Sarah being his wife. We see during that time that God expands his, his, his business and his animals, his holdings, such that he and Lot had to part ways. We see that Lot got carried off. Abram raised an army, went and, to, and delivered him out of it, paid tithes to Melchizedek. That brings us up to Genesis 14 now. Genesis 15, God, uh, God doesn't give, make her pregnant yet. Instead, he simply reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. I am trustworthy. Wait on me. I will be faithful. You will bear a child. Then Abram does what the rest of us would do. He complains, God, I'm still childless. I guess I'm going to have to raise up a, a servant's child as one of my own and give all of my holdings to him. Because that's what you would do back then. It wasn't uncommon to have a child through your servant, and that child would then inherit the land because there was no 100% you know, true blood heir for your holdings. Genesis 15, 4, God tells him, this man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And then God makes a blood oath with him. Remember that blood oath? We talked about it in the message called the children of the new covenant. And it's where God takes the most powerful human oath that Abraham could understand. Remember, he rips animals in half, literally. Uh, they they cut the, put them on two sides of the path. And typically two men would walk through that path saying, if either of us break this oath, may this be done to me. Okay, it was the strongest human oath possible. And so God used this little human 
oath thing to make, to show to Abraham how much you can trust me. And then God didn't ask Abraham to go through. God himself went through as represented by a pot and a torch, okay? Meaning that this covenant of land, seed, and blessing, it's not based on your faith, Abram, it's, it's based on me. Okay, and what's really funny is the very next verse after God gets done doing all of this in Genesis chapter 16, the very next verse, here's what we find. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's complaining about God. Clearly God is the one at fault. He is to blame. God has prevented me. So go into my servant, have a child through this handmaid of mine, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Can you believe that this is our example of faith today? Does this look like faith to anybody here? Sarai, she's, she's blaming God right here. God just promised through a blood oath, I will give you children. In the very next verse, Sarah's saying, man, I guess God's not gonna come through. I guess it's up to us to carry out what's good for us in our life. And so here, go into my handmaid, Hagar. And then we all know how that ended. Abram was still able to bear a child through her. We have Ishmael. This is the son of the flesh. This is not the way God says, this man shall not be your heir. But Abram still has a child through, her, or through this woman anyway. And then we know that Ish, through Ishmael grew out what group of people? The Muslims and the Arabs. In fact, we lived in a Muslim country for a while. They will tell you that their lineage is traced back to Ishmael. And so through this child of the flesh, because they wouldn't wait on God and they didn't exercise faith at this point, their decision not to trust God, not to act on faith, ended up hurting them and their family for generations to come, even all the way to today where the Dome of the Rock now sits on the Temple Mount. Can that ever happen to us? That God calls us to trust him, to obey his word. We get into a tough spot and God says, obey me anyway. We make a decision on the flesh to protect ourselves and then it leads to lifelong consequences that affect us and the rest of our family. Can we do that? We could probably give a mic down here and give testimony to the times where we wished we had gone back and trusted God, but didn't. Well, this is who we're talking about here. These people so far don't look like an example of faith to follow. I'm not encouraging any of you who are barren, you know, to go get a, a handmaid here. This is, doesn't look like a life of faith, somebody who's complaining about God. Well, God has prevented me from having a child. Nonetheless, by Genesis 17, at age 99, God visits Abram again. 24 years after the initial promise of a great nation. <clears throat> and then he promises him offspring. Then still no child. Genesis 18 rolls around. 18.1 says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. I want you to understand that this visit of three men to visit Abram, these are no angels. This is not an angelic visit. This is a, what we call a theophany. Theos, or theology, meaning God. Uh, and then the second word is phrenea, means to show. We get the word phenomenon. So this is a God phenomenon. Because what does our text say? To, it doesn't say an angel visited God. It says who? The Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That means you know you're looking at the word Jehovah. In the Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels in the Hebrew language, which makes it really hard to interpret. Uh, but it's Yehoah, Jehovah. This is God. And so God visits Abram. And here's what's really interesting. The Bible singularly says that God visited Abraham. 
But yet, how does God present himself to Abram? In three people. Do you think that's accidental, that God chose to represent him? One God visits Abram, but in three persons, three co-equal individuals. The Trinity, it may not, the word may not be in the Bible, but the concept is clearly taught all throughout the scriptures. In creation, the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The father is, is talking. He says, let us make man in our image. So clearly the Trinity is taught in creation. Colossians tells us that, that the world was made through Christ. John 1 says that through Christ, all things were made that were made. Okay, and so the Trinity is taught here. We see the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus, who's down there, the Father speaking from the sky, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And even here, one Lord visits Abram, but in three persons. Well, these men speak to him in Genesis 18, verses 10 through 12. It says, the Lord said, again, the Lord singular, talking about these three men. When these three men speak, it's still the Lord speaking. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your son, will, or Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, and she's contemplating the weakness of her flesh that we just described. And what does she do when she hears this conversation that Sarah, this time next year, now God gave him a time frame. This time next year, Sarah's gonna have a son, and Sarah does what? She laughs to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, Am I, shall I have pleasure? This word pleasure is simply refer, is a feminine noun referring to the pleasure that a woman has with a man that produces a child. Shall I again have pleasure with my husband and produce a child through this? Ha ha ha. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a joke to her. Again, this is the woman Hebrews 11 calls out as an example of faith. Someone who doubted God, someone who accused God, Someone who wouldn't wait on God, instead coerced her husband into an adulterous relationship to have a child outside, right after God says, this one shall not be your heir, but your own son shall be. And then immediately after she does this, and then when God once again promises her and gives her a time frame, finally, she laughs at God. You know, I'm glad examples like this exist in the scripture because I too am a person of flawed faith. I don't always make the right choices. I don't make the right decisions, or sometimes I'll make the right choice, but I'm scared to walk in obedience to God. It's with trembling hands that I go out to do what God has called us to do. Well, because of her laughter, remember, she's not the only one that laughed, by the way. Genesis 17, 17, Abram laughed too. Husband and wife are both laughing at the concept that they're ever gonna, these old people are ever gonna have these kids, and so God basically told them, here's what you're gonna name your kid. So you think that's funny? That's what they named him. That's what Ishak, Isaac means. He laughs. You're going to laugh about this, but now I'm going to have you name this child this. So every time you call him in for dinner, every time you call him in for bedtime or to take a bath, it's going to remind you of your own weak, flawed faith. But it's not the strength of our faith that makes it faith. It's the object of our faith. Despite what faith healers are going to try to tell you. It's the object of your faith. I'll give you an example. When I was a little kid, Around June every year, we had something in North Iowa in Mason City called the Band Festival. And all these high school marching bands would come together and they would compete. And our family always went down there. My dad was a marching band nerd. I was a marching band nerd eventually. But when I was a kid, we would go there and my dad would always park in the same spot in Mason City. And we would cross, have to cross the Meredith Wilson footbridge in Mason City. It's a 450 foot long walking bridge. And it was, it was only about 25 feet above the river, but you know, it felt like I was crossing the Royal Gorge. I felt like some intrepid explorer as I'm walking across this bridge. But when I was a really little guy crossing that, I was terrified of this bridge. 
We'd get on this bridge, and my dad would just kind of march triumphantly up there, and he'd turn around and see I wasn't following him. I'm standing there at the other bridge. And he's telling me, he's bouncing up and down, you can trust this bridge, come on out and visit. You know, come out with me, let's join me. It'll hold you, don't worry. And eventually I would, you know, I'd kind of laugh nervously, <laughs> you know, and I'm holding the guardrail as if that's the only thing keeping me from plunging into the abyss. And so I'm doing this sweaty palms and I'm just crossing this bridge and I get to the other side. And the entire time the band festival is tainted for me because I know at the end of that band festival, I still have to cross that bridge again. And it was terrifying to me. Now, did I exercise faith? I did, didn't I? Why? Because I crossed the bridge. Now, I may have been scared when I did it. I may be nervously laughing, sweaty palms, gripping the handrail, but I followed my father's instructions and I trusted ultimately the bridge. I just did it with an insecure heart. That is still faith because it was not the strength of my faith that kept me safe, was it? But it was the strength of the object in which I placed my faith that kept me safe. And the same thing is true with God. Sometimes we exercise a very flawed faith before God. God, I'm scared to obey you in this area. But I'm gonna obey you anyway. And with, with clammy hands and with a fearful heart and laughing nervously, we grip the guardrail and we follow God because our Father has called us out to this place to obey him in some area of the word, and we just feel like it's gonna destroy us, but we do it anyway. Is that still faith? It is, because you followed God. Remember, our faith, God doesn't describe our faith as some great mighty thing. When he compares it to a seed, to what does God compare our faith? To a mustard seed, this tiny little nothing speck. But from that mustard seed, God can cause it to grow into one of the mightiest trees that, you know, in Israel's agriculture. Well, that was the flawed faith of Sarah. She laughed nervously. She's clinging under the guardrail. She's trusting God. No one exercises perfect faith. But then again, our, uh, it, does, it shouldn't discourage us from following God in areas that are frightening to us. Number two, faith in, is in God, as we talked about, not in ourselves. What is it exactly that God is praising about the life of Sarah that he wants us to emulate? I believe the key to what God actually praises in her is found in the second half of verse 11. This is what about Sarah's life that God wants us to notice and remember. She considered him faithful who had promised. It says Sarah considered God. This is a word that means to judge or esteem, to reckon or consider him to be chief in a place of power. It's the Greek word hegeomai. We get the word uh, hegemony from it. We don't use the word hegemony very often. Uh, all that means is you have a group of people or a nation that others perceive as being mighty and powerful. And because of that, there's a certain influence that this nation or group of people has upon other people. It's a hegemony. And in, in a very real sense, the United States is considered by much of the world a hegemony. There's, we're viewed as a nation of great military might. Once upon a time, we were considered a nation of great financial and economic might. And because of that, I can tell you, having been all around the world, there's a certain degree of respect, especially in the Asian countries that we were in, that would earn you just because you're from the United States, because you have a blue passport. When we were in Malaysia, we had uh, local Malay, were Muslims. We had Indians. We had Chinese from mainland China, Chinese from you know, Hong Kong and other places, uh, Chinese from Singapore, and then you had Americans and, and people from all around the world, Middle East. 
And something I noticed is that people would treat me differently than they would, say, somebody from India who was, uh, who's considered a, a poorer nation, that we would get preferential treatment. It wasn't right, but it's just what happened. Uh, I would have, it was awkward. You'd have doormen and even drivers, they'd salute you. I'm not even a soldier. I've never been a soldier. Do I, do I salute back? Do I just receive it? Do I nod? Do I ignore him? It was just, it was awkward. But there was a certain degree of respect and treatment that was afforded you because of a perceived dominance of the nation that you come from. And this is the word that God uses to describe what Sarah did with, with, with God. She judged, she judged God. She considered God. She reckoned him to be chief. She reckoned him to be great. She reckoned him to be, we might say, Lord, that he has a rightful claim to her and all that's in her life. This faith that she exercised in God is directly related to this. The, I would, in fact, I would say the faith that we exercise in God is directly related to his lordship in our life. If God, is, if God is your Lord, there's nothing you won't do to follow him. If God is not your Lord, if your God is very small and he's just this little genie that you rub the lamp when you want God on your terms to make your life better, then you're not going to submit to God as Lord. He's someone that we control. He's the genie. He's this genie in the magic lamp. I have the power over him. Yes, he's great and mighty, but ultimately the genie exists to serve me. God, will you heal me from this? And rub that lamp again. God, will you take care of me? God, I need you to fix my kids. God, I need this raise. And so God is just this mighty power, but he's under our control. Instead, Sarah saw God as a mighty power, but she was under his control. She hegeomied God. She, she saw him as Lord. She judged him, esteemed him highly as chief. And that's why she exercised faith. We exercise faith in accordance to his lordship in our life. If you're not walking by faith today, I'm gonna to tell you the, the reason why. It's because God is small to you. If we're not walking in faith, we're not walking in obedience to his word, it's because our God in our estimation is a power that is there to serve my life, but he's not the Lord and rightful master over the universe. He's not in control of all things and he's not in control of me. God is something I go to when I want something from him. And that is not the God of the Bible, and that will not lead to a life of faith. But it says that Sarah esteemed God, thought so highly of him, that it allowed her to, God to influence her decisions. Her faith was in God and not herself. It's not that Sarah thought so highly of herself. Yeah, I know I'm old, but I think I still got it in me. She was laughing at herself. Her faith was in God in his strength. It's the same kind of faith that David exhibited in 1 Samuel 17 when he goes to fight Goliath. What does David say? Does he say, I'm gonna come out here and I'm gonna work you over? You know? David says, no, David says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. It's the Lord's power. You see, the reason that David exhibited great faith, the kind of faith that even Saul, who by the way was, <clears throat> the Bible says, was head and shoulders above everybody else, means the tallest man in the land next to Saul still only came up to Saul's shoulders and yet Saul was scared in a tent. Why? Because Saul was evaluating his own strength, his own ability to get through. Saul was walking by sight. David walked by faith. He wasn't looking at himself. He esteemed God highly. God was big to him. God was his Lord. And we're not gonna let this Philistine speak evil of our God. My Lord will deliver you into my hand. See, God was big to him. The reason David exercised faith, the reason Sarah exercised faith, the reason you and I exercise faith has everything to do with our theology. 
Now, that's a word that some people, as soon as you hear the word theology, some of you are already going to sleep. Uh, theology is not an unexciting word. Theology is the most important thing about your life. Often, theology is called the queen of sciences. There's nothing more important in this world than what you'd believe to be true about God, who he is and what God has done. There's nothing more important about your life. It is through theology that it shapes your entire worldview. It shapes every decision that you ever make in life is based upon what you believe to be true of God and what he's done and what he will do. So our faith is relative to our theological understanding of God. Well, what did Sarah know about God that caused her to trust him? It says that she judged God to be a certain way. What? She judged God to be faithful. Faithful means trustworthy. I can count on you that when you say you're gonna do something, you're gonna do it. When you say uh, this is what's right, I trust you that it's what's right. I consider you faithful. You know what faithfulness looks like in humans, don't you? When somebody says they're gonna do something. Sort of like when the cable company says I'll be there between 11 and four and they come at six o'clock. Was that faithful? No, it is not faithful. They did not come follow through on what they said they were gonna do or any of you who have ever been like a children's director and, and people all of a sudden call you up on Saturday night at 9.30 p.m. and say, I can't come. I hope you have a fun time finding someone to fill in for me. Is that faithful? Friends, it's not because you couldn't be trusted. Faithful would have been you can't be there, we understand, but you find people to replace you. That's what faithfulness is, that you can trust me, that if you have entrusted something to me, I'm going to come through for you on the other side. Right before a big event, I'm not gonna bail on you. You know, I'm going to follow through or I will find someone to follow through for me, but you can trust in me. And this is the kind of faith that Sarah had in God. He's faithful. If God said he's gonna be there, he's gonna be there. If God said he's going to do something, he's gonna do something. If God said that it's the right way to do things, then it's the right way to do things. And Sarah judged or esteemed God highly as Lord of her life. She's like, if God said this, then he's gonna do it and I will trust him. You and I have a hard time believing that that's actually what she believed because we're looking at her failures. But what's God looking at? What does he reward her for? He rewards her for the times she exercised faith. You see, man, we look on the outside. We look at the failures, but God looks at your successes, if you will. He looks at when you're willing to trust him, when God is big to you and you're willing to walk out. Faithful just means that you can rely on God. First Thessalonians 5 talks about, uh, in context, he's talking about sanctification, when God has called us out from the world into his, his, his marvelous light. Bible says, faithful is he who called you, not into the ministry, but into salvation. Faithful is he who called you who also will do it. It's like Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's like what Galatians says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Faithful is he who called you who also will do it. If God has called you to himself in salvation, he's going to complete that work someday. By the way, those are all evidences of the fact that you cannot lose salvation. When we hear people talking about losing salvation, it means they don't fully understand what salvation is. It's not a synergistic work between you and God trying to do things. Jesus did his part, but really I'm trusting in me to keep me saved. Salvation is something that God offers freely. And the reason I stay saved, the reason I continue to walk obediently is because I want to. He's converted my heart. If you, have, if you came up and you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you're a member of a church, but your heart still longs for the world, you long for sins such that you'd rather be sinning than doing that, and you have no desire to know God, you have no desire for truth, no desire to grow, it's, it's probably because there's no converted heart. We've got to look at that. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. 
But Sarah reckoned God to be faithful. You can trust him. You can, you can, when God says, I'm gonna have a kid in one year, I'm gonna have a kid in one year. You know, there's a part of the United States that you can go and uh, everybody loves to go to this place and it's a bunch of water that's underground. Sounds exciting already, doesn't it? Uh, in these, on these channels that go all the way down to the earth's you know, volcanic regions and it heats up this water in such a way that uh, in these superheated channels of water, uh, sometimes a little water will go out and then it creates like this, not kind of like this open space, the water becomes turbulent and with this open space, it becomes steam, and the steam rushes up these jets of water through these channels, and these gigantic jets of steam and water come out of the ground. What do we call that? A geyser, don't we? What's the most famous geyser? Old Faithful. Some of y'all have been there. Old Faithful is this really amazing geyser, and it's doing all these things, and it's, we call it Old Faithful because it's one of the geysers you can accurately predict when it's going to erupt. You can look at the length of the last eruption, how long it erupted, and then you can accurately predict when it's going to erupt again. We call that faithful. It means that we know that it's going to come through. I can schedule my visit to go out and see Old Faithful. I can go there a certain time of day, and with reasonable confidence, I know it's going to erupt at such and such a time, and it does every single time. Well, that's who our God is. He is faithful. That God he does not change. It's, it's a characteristic of God in theology we call immutability. God's inability to mutate, his inability to change. That when God says something, he's never gonna change. And aren't you glad, aren't you glad that you're not putting your faith in Jesus now, but you get to the end of your life and you die and you show up in the presence of God and he says, well, terms have changed. God is faithful. If he says something, it's, it remains true uh, through all eternity. And this is what God desires of us as well, that we, like God, become faithful, that we are unchanging in the way that we obey God. Well, this is the kind of faith that Sarah exhibited. Yes, it was flawed. Yes, it was weak. But in the end, she trusted God and she rested on the theology, what she knew to be true of God. She wasn't just looking at her circumstances anymore. She's not looking at her body anymore. She's looking only at God. Number three, we're gonna see that faith is rewarded. Therefore, because of this act of faith, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I think this verse is kind of funny. It just shows that God is no more kind to Abram than he was to Sarah in his description. How does the Bible describe Abram here? And this man, as good as dead. In the Greek, it reads, one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Not really, but you get what I mean. This guy, he's not long for this world. He's, his body is not strong. In fact, the Greek word there is nekruo, which, which we get the word necrosis. Any doctors, nurses? It's when flesh starts to die. Uh, you, you, we get the word like a necrotic limb. It's what you've got a dead limb. Um, the Bible is describing Abram's body and his ability to have children as necrotic. It's dead. He's got this decaying body. And so God takes an old decaying man and a woman stricken with age and God produces a child through this union. You know, sometimes I ask, why do you think God made them wait so long? Well, because if God simply said, we're gonna bless you with a child, surprise, here it is, it doesn't really require them to act on faith, does it? But instead, God gives them a command and he says, you're gonna wait on this. You're gonna trust me. Everything in your circumstances are gonna tell you, doubt God, doubt God, you can't trust God. But I want you to take me simply at my word. 
I don't want you to be able to just look at your life and esteem that this is gonna happen. I want you to remember me and let your theological understanding of who I am de determine your actions, and I want you just to trust in me. And so God made them wait for 25 years. Well, in this impossible situation, God produced a single descendant of promise. Not many. Why do, why do you think God didn't all of a sudden say, and God is going to bless you with, uh, I don't know, what do they call them, eight kids, octuplets or something like that? God, why didn't God bless him with like 45 children, a whole litter of kids? Why didn't God bless him with many, many, many kids? Because then people might be tempted to think that this is Abram, and he's, he's mighty, and there's something amazing about him. That's why he had a mighty nation. He had all these kids. Why do you think God made him wait from 75 to 100? Once again, so that nobody's crediting Abraham. Remember, Abraham could still have kids back then. By the time God let him have kids, he's described as good as dead. Why did Jesus wait so many days after Lazarus was dead before he raised him up? Again, so that in the end, God gets the glory and not man. First sin of the universe wasn't Adam and Eve. Who was it? Satan. And what was that sin? It's to take glory from God. Why do you think that when the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that it's not of works lest any man should boast? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's something God does. And that not of yourselves, it's not you or me. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody's gonna take God's glory from him. Isaiah 42, God talks about, I am the Lord, and I will give my glory to none other. And so God's gonna make them wait. You're gonna wait on this child, and you're gonna get one child of promise, and it's gonna be long past the time when either of you could ever reasonably have kids. And it's so that in the end, people don't go, wow, did you see that Abraham? Whew, huh, man, can you believe that? They're gonna say, what an amazing God that Abraham serves. That's an impossible situation. So people are only left with, with the glorification of God. Clearly, this is a work of God. And friends, I would argue this is why God allows you and I to get into impossible situations. Why did God let me wait so long? Why does God allow evil in the world so long? Why doesn't God judge evil immediately? Well, I'll give you an answer real quick. It's because you're still here. Be careful when you want God to judge all evil immediately because then whose evil is he gonna have to judge? Yours and mine. And there's a lot of us that if God would have judged evil in the world 10 years ago, you and I would be in hell. Why does God allow evil in the world? Because he's patient and forbearing. And he wants us to live by faith because everything we look at in the world says, don't trust God, don't trust God. Why is there so much evil? Clearly shouldn't trust God. It's the same struggle that Sarah and Abraham had here. Why should I trust God? Been waiting year after year. God keeps coming back promising that we're gonna have a kid and it never comes through. God wants us to look past all the evidence around us that says God is not good, and he wants us to take him at his word that he is. And that is what makes it faith. And so God's gonna make him wait. And when he has a kid, it's gonna be one kid. You say, no, 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 Abraham had multiple kids. Technically, God had Ishmael, or Abraham had Ishmael through, through Hagar, and he had six other kids through Keturah, another concubine of his. But what's interesting is, in, in Genesis chapter 22, when he goes to sacrifice his son, Isaac, what does God say to him? I want you to take your son, what? Your only son. There was only one child of promise. There's only one child that God promised him. The other children were children of your doing, your power, your strength, your ideas. But there's only one child of promise through which the rest of the world, the rest of the nations will be blessed. Like, like Isaac, Israel was God's little miracle child. Think about the nation of Israel. Through Sarah, you have this one kid, 
And then through them, you have Jacob and Esau, still not amazing, not mighty. Uh, and then God has Israel, one who contends with God. And from them, you get the 12 tribes of Israel. And all this came about from just this one act of obedience and trusting God when it felt like you shouldn't. But if you look at the, nation, the life of the nation of Israel, friends, it's great evidence for just the existence of God himself. In fact, Blaise Pascal, a 17th century mathematician, philosopher, theologian, was once asked by the king of France, I think it was, how was it? Henry the 14th or something like that. He was asked by the king, he says, I want you, you're a smart guy, you've been educated, give me proof that God exists. You and I, we would have taken him to a number of different places, we'd try to prove you know, the existence of God, but he just said this one thing, he says, well, your majesty, the Jews, the Jews. He believed that just by looking at the preservation of the nation of Israel is enough to have sufficient faith in God because there's no other nation on earth who ever lost their nation and got it back. Who, who this tiny little nothing nation becomes this mighty, significant nation. And to this day, some of the most significant and important people in the world are Jews. Some of the most successful actors, Nobel Peace Prize winners, there so many of them are disproportionately Jewish, this tiny nation, and yet God blessed them in, in such great ways. God has protected them. He protected them from uh, genocide multiple times over, genocide in Egypt. He protected them from uh, the genocide of, uh, uh, not just from Pharaoh, but also from uh, Herod's genocide. During the period of the judges, he protected them from six periods of time where, they, where a foreign nation took them over. Any other nation that would have spelled doom, but not for Israel. He protected them from when they were moved from their land in Babylon and transported, and the Babylonians lived in their land and intermixed. That usually spells doom for your culture. They're gone. They're intermixed. There's no distinction now, but for the Jews, they remain distinct. They survived the pogroms of Eastern Europe. They survived Hitler's genocide and they're still around today, and surprisingly, they're back in their land. How do you explain that? No other nation has ever done that. How do you explain that? You cannot, except that they are God's chosen child. The nation of Israel is God's chosen people, and God is sovereignly, supernaturally protecting them. Well, by God's power, a single child produced descendants, he says, here as numerous as the stars of heaven and, and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Why does he use sand? Why does he use stars as illustrations? Well, I think first of all, we understand they're innumerable. How many of you on your vacation several weeks ago, did you sit around on the beach and try to count all the sand grains? In the, you might have told, told your kids to do that, just to make them quiet. You know, you count the sand, kid, and come back when you've numbered it. Uh, you ever count the stars in the sky? It's impossible. We can't even see most of them because of our light pollution. They're just, they're innumerable. It's overwhelming. Also, these are things that describe permanence. You ever try to destroy sand? I don't mean a sand castle. That's easy to destroy. Have you ever tried to destroy sand? That's not easy. What about the stars? Are they permanents? They are. You can, you can set calendars by them. You can set time by them. You can navigate ships by them. The stars are predictable. They're there forever. In fact, some theologians even say the distinguishing between sand and stars is a distinguishing between the physical descendants of Abraham, the sand, and the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who are chosen children of God, uh, through the stars in the sky. Did you know that the Bible looks at us in the book of Romans as the children of Abraham? That we are the spiritual heritage and lineage. We're part of that innumerable horde of people that are part of this great nation, this great people of God. Romans 9, talking to the Jews, 
He says, I want you to understand this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because you have Abraham's DNA in you, just because you're Jewish, you wear a yarmulke and you spin dreidels in Hanukkah, your name is Goldstein and you celebrate Yom Kippur, that doesn't make you Jewish. These external conformity to these religious things, that does make you Jewish. Same thing for us. You want to be a people of God? It's not the external things that you do. The fact that you come to church in a suit and tie, the fact that you come to church at all, the fact that you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, got wet in the baptistry, you know, give God a tip from time to time in the offering envelope, these things don't save you. There's only one thing that's going to save you, and that's your faith in God, so that God will get the glory and not us. And that conversion process that changes you is what makes you a true child, a spiritual child of Abraham, part of God's offspring, God's miracle children. Romans 2.24 talks about being a Jew inwardly and not outwardly. It means from conversion from the heart. Inwardly means look at your heart and life. Did God change you? Are you loving people? Are you kind people? Are you patient people? Are you self-controlled people? All these fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, describing the evidence that the Spirit of God is in you. Is that in you? Are you a Jew outwardly or inwardly, Paul was asking. And I think God would ask us the same question here. Are you a believer outwardly or inwardly? Outwardly that you just attend services, but you're mean as a snake? You attend services and you tip God from time to time, but you're nasty with people, you're rude, you're, you're impolite, you're unloving, you're unkind, you're selfish? Does that, am I still a child of God just because I attend services? No, you're not. We're not Christians because we're Christians outwardly, but we're Christians because we're Christians inwardly, as we said before. How do the people know that we're children of God? By our love, that God has transformed our hearts, that we are children of Abraham inwardly. Well, Sarah, there, there's a lot of things that she did wrong, but, there, but in the end, God credits her as having exhibited faith in him. But you and I look at this and we're thinking, but that's so insignificant relative to the rest of her life. Great, so she trusted God and had one child. What possible impact is that gonna have on the world? You know, it's not for us to determine what that mustard seed of faith is gonna grow into, but it's up to God. One plants and other waters, God gives the increase. I wanna close with this story about a man you don't know. Name is Edward Kimball. He's not famous. He's just some Sunday school teacher in some podunk town somewhere. But he decided that he's going to reach out to his, he, he, he was a Sunday school teacher of like this ornery group of hyper boys, you know, young men. And he decided, I'm gonna get the gospel out to each one of these kids. And so he did. And one of the boys, he had to catch him uh, after school. He's working at a shoe shop. He's stocking the shelves. He goes up and he shares the gospel. And this boy gets converted. And you probably remember his name, Dwight L. Moody. You heard of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Dwight L. Moody, famous preacher evangelist. And Dwight L. Moody's ministry went on. And, he's, and there was a man named Wilbur Chapman who was saved under his ministry. Again, you probably don't know him, but he was at that time a fairly famous evangelist. And Wilbur Chapman goes on, and he decides to do evangelistic crusades, at which point a famous baseball player comes by and visits, one of the rowdiest, nastiest guys in baseball. And he gets converted, and his name was Billy Sunday. Well, Billy Sunday then ditches baseball. He's like, man, there's eternal things at stake here. I'm leaving baseball to go serve God, which was far more important to him. And so he went out and he was sharing the gospel and he was doing evangelistic crusades and things. And under Billy Sunday's 
uh, ministry, there was a man named Mordecai Ham who got saved. Probably, again, a name you don't know. Insignificant to most of us, but this guy got saved. And so he started, he just felt a call of God to get out there and be evangelistic. I've got to reach the world. By the way, are you noticing a trend here? When God gets a hold of a person's life, what's one of the most important things to you? That people get saved? That people hear the gospel? That we get out of what's comfortable and we get out there and we leave Major League Baseball behind, we leave everything behind to go and follow Jesus and to share the gospel with people. Well, that's what we're seeing here is this trend. And so Mordecai Ham goes, and his journeys take him to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's preaching. And there's a group of kids there, and a lot of them are cutting up, and they're, they're not real uh, pleased with him. And the word gets around school. You got this guy, Mordecai Ham, and he's preaching crusades here. We ought to go <clears throat> you know, disrupt those meetings. He's talking about all the sin and the drinking and the smoking, and the, it shouldn't be going down to the brothels and things. And we ought to go just stir it up with this holy roller type. And so, you know, you had this guy, um, his name, you know, his friends called him Billy Frank. And we ought to go down there and just stir it up. Well, Billy Frank goes down to these meetings and he sits just out of curiosity and he listens. But instead of feeling like disrupting the meeting, he got very excited about the meetings. In fact, he came back the next night. And after a, a night of impassioned singing and preaching, oh, Billy Frank got saved. Billy Frank, we know him better as William Franklin Graham, Billy Graham. Have people gotten saved under Billy Graham's ministry? You see, you look at this, this lineup, this small act of faith going all the way back to Edward Kimball. And if we'd be honest, it goes much further than him. But it goes back to this one guy who was teaching a no-name Sunday school in a no-name town with no-name kids at that time. And he just wanted to make sure that they got the gospel. And from that tiny mustard seed of faith, God grew it into these mighty oaks that went out there and they blessed the world. I wonder sometimes with you and I, what is it that God is calling you and I to do to act in faith, a small act of faith? God isn't asking you to be a great person. God isn't asking you to reach the world. That's a lot of times what Christians, we, we take on ourselves that responsibility. Your call is not to reach the world. Your call is to go into the world. When you try to reach the world, it's gonna discourage you, or worse yet, it's going to lead to pragmatic, rapid reproduction ministries that don't really have a true gospel anymore because your only goal is to get the gospel to every single human that lives on earth and to bring them all to conversion. If I'm, if I'm convincing enough, I'll bring them all to me. The goal is for us is not to reach the world, but to go into the world and to trust God with that mustard seed of faith that he's going to call out his people and we're going to trust him to bring in a mighty harvest for himself. But I wonder how many of us today, God is calling you and I to get uncomfortable for him. God is asking us to cross that great 450-foot walking bridge, and the thought of following God and obedience there is terrifying to us. And with clammy hands and chuckling to ourselves and clinging to the guardrail, God is asking us to go and to follow our Father across that bridge, to do a lot of times what these men did here, to evangelize our world, to get uncomfortable, to talk to people who are not like us, to talk to people who uh, don't think like us, talk to people who might criticize you for what you believe. My question is, not how confident do you feel in yourself, but how confident are you in God? Is God still at work saving people? He is, isn't he? And who does he save people through? For whatever reason, he saves people through people like you and I. Evangelism isn't something that a pastor does, simply. It's not something that the church at large does, simply. The Great Commission is for all believers, anyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8, we're all his witnesses out there in the world. We're either good ones or we're not very good witnesses, but it's something that God has called all of us to do by faith to walk forward in obedience to him. Even if we're terrified, we, allow, we hegeo my God. We, we revere him such, we have such a grand view of God that we believe if God is sending me out to save 
to share the gospel with people, it's gonna have an impact in this world and we follow him. Well, why did God include Sarah in this list of faith? Again, you and I, we look at her and we see a woman who accused God, a woman who gave her handmaid to Abram in adultery and who laughed at God. Why is she in the role of faith? I think it's because when it comes down to it for believers, when we stand before God and he judges our life, not on our sins, as a believer, he judges our life on what we did for him. He's not, he's not going to punish us for the, sins, for the things that we didn't do well or we didn't do right. Instead, he, the Bible talks about, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we will be rewarded for the good things that we did. So God, when he's measuring our life as a believer, our sin was dealt with at the cross, and now God is looking at our life, and he's looking for these opportunities where you had a decision to make, a decision to walk forward in faith, or a decision to trust in yourself. I pray that even following Sarah's example here, you'll have enough confidence in God, enough respect for him as Lord, that you'll be willing to walk forward and to live obediently to him and to exercise a flawed faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today as we've studied your word. We're grateful that you have given us examples like this. God, where these people aren't just these caricatures of faith, where everything they did was good, everything they did was right, everything they did was noteworthy and worthy of emulation. Instead, we get these examples. You paint a picture of people and you include the warts and the wrinkles. You include that receding hairline. You include things that they're probably not terribly proud of. And yet, you highlight the aspects of faith that you wish for us to copy. And so God, I thank you that you give us these kinds of examples. That even as flawed individuals ourselves, we can walk out into this world, and even though it might be scary to us, we can still cross that bridge, trembling, worried about maybe the future and how things are gonna end. But Lord, nonetheless, help us to walk in obedience to you and to cross that bridge with you and to exercise whatever mustard seed of faith that we have. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.